0: Hello and welcome back to episode 44 of Double Reel, the monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films and the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host also called James Adamson. Welcome James. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Last week we brought you the first part, Double Real Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases and chat about how we're fitting in film watching into our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you'll find reviews of new films including Dream Scenario and Ridley Scott's Napoleon, and the New Hunger Games prequel, my final Cronenberg film for the year Videodrome, and James' final look at a Nick Cage film picked at random. We follow that up with the latest edition of the Penalty Shootout Film Quiz. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful if you could take a couple of minutes to give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features, all of which are connected to Ridley Scott and his new film, Napoleon.
1: We start with Classics and Recommended, where we dip into our great list of films we haven't got round to seeing yet. For this
0: episode, it's Oscar-winning feminist road movie, Thelma and Louise. Our hidden gem looks at lesser-known or underappreciated films that deserve a wider audience, which this month features Ridley Scott's 1977 debut, The Duelists.
1: Then it's the one that got away, where we look at projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. This time, in honour of Ridley Scott's latest film, we look at the legendary attempt by
0: Stanley Kubrick to make his own Napoleon film. We close the Features episode with the remake, Hate Watch. This month we discuss how one of my cinematic heroes made the inexplicable decision to revive the old biblical epic genre with Exodus Gods and Kings.
1: Next week it's The Big Conversation, where we discuss a
0: topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. First, we've got some messages from listeners about this month's features. Our classic this month, as we said, is Thelma and Louise, and Daniel says, really enjoyed this. No one really expected the guy who did Blade Runner and Alien to do a feminist road movie, but he took to it like a duck to water. Love the two leads. Sarah agrees, great film, nice balance between the visuals director is known for and the strong characterization the story needs. A Hidden Gem is The Duelist, and Zack says, Up there with the best debut films of all time. Amazing what he achieved on such a small budget. Rakash says, It wouldn't quite make my list of best ever Ridley Scott films, but it's pretty close. Trey says, My favourite film of his apart from Blade Runner. And Hidai says, Definitely a film more people should see. Brings the historical period to life so much it feels like you were there. The one that got away is Napoleon, and Rana says, Maybe the story's too big for anyone to really do. At least all Kubrick's work wasn't completely wasted, because we got Barry Lyndon instead. Damien says don't know what Kubrick would have done with this really I think films about this era work better when they just reference Napoleon like War and Peace or tell a part of a story like Waterloo. Our roommate hate watches Exodus Gods and Kings and Dell says I was done with Ridley Scott after this I don't care about any of his recent films apart from The Martian. Apart from that his last really good film was American Gangster. And talk about a gob he's the movie director equivalent of Noel Gallagher. <laughs> wow. Jesse says bizarre film it's like someone decided to make one of those faith based films but with a budget of 200 million dollars yeah I'm not surprised people have got negative reactions to Ridley Scott after watching that
1: could you imagine if they played faith by George Michael during like the big battle
0: sequences in that film tremendous We'll also be talking about whether a remake would improve Prometheus and Johnny said, This was a stupid film. Who spends a trillion dollars on a deep space mission because Numi Rapace chooses to believe? No explanation for the whole Guy Pierce thing and characters doing stupid things like the guy who spends hours mapping the alien building and then gets lost inside the alien building he's just mapped. Paul says any remake needs to bring back the real star of the franchise, Jonesy the Cat. Peter says, I enjoyed Prometheus the first time and it was great to get lots of alien lore, but a rewatch showed up all the flaws. On the other hand, Russell says, I think it's really good and there's not much I'd change except maybe more time to develop the characters of the other scientists. This is the best alien film apart from the first two. And there were some other defenders of Prometheus on the comments. Thanks all for your messages. It's great to hear from you. Now on with the pod. Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and we've got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films from Scorsese gangster drama casino to 80s Cold War thriller No Way Out. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the audience recommendations that we are getting on Letterboxd, on our Double reel lists and on any of the socials where you can add any recommendations you want to make. This month we look at another Ridley Scott film which brought him back to Hollywood's top table after a period of mixed fortunes and gained him his first Oscar nomination. The classics and recommended feature of episode 44 is Thelma and Louise. So, James, uh, this is one you hadn't seen before we nominated it for the Ridley Scott special. Um, yes. so you hadn't seen it before H- wh- what had you heard about this film or seen or read about this film uh, before we decided to, to do it as the classic I mean I know the final scene had been parodied to death by like Simpsons and all sorts so there's no surprise for you when, when you get to the um, final scene when you're watching this
1: yeah but all I did know was that um, one of the leads um, her skills were fading with age <laughs>
0: um, but that was it yeah, I mean, when I when I went to when I saw this at the time, I didn't see it at the cinema, but I saw it pretty soon after it came out. Um, I think the general feeling was one of wow, I didn't know he had it in him. This isn't what we expect to see from Ridley Scott. It was a very female-led film, and he was perceived as being a very male-led director, notwithstanding Ripley in the first Alien film, and it being more character-driven than being about him you know, doing great set, to, you know, the sort of think, oh, look at all the effort he did into kind of the set design and the visuals in, in, in Blade Runner. Now he's doing something very different here. That, that was obviously a very contemporary reaction and Ridley Scott's had such a varied career since then. How did this seem to you compared to his other films? Did it seem in keeping with his other stuff? I mean, it's a bit different for me because
1: I only started watching his films, what, maybe in 2010? Mm-hmm think maybe a bit when did i first watched maybe 2011 12 mm-hmm. um so by that point he was he, he'd cast namira pass in the lead role but even just looking at it like that even with like the last Jewel and those kind of films that's not many to have female leads in however you could say that about every big male mm. director i mean i can't think of many spielberg films where he's got like a strong female lead maybe not the same amount as Ridley scott or maybe a couple more mm-hmm. um so yeah but it's good that he did do this film especially at the time you know in the 90s when it was i mean it still is such a male-dominated uh yeah industry but i think it's a bit of a weird criticism to level at someone especially in 1991 or whatever but um yeah i mean if there's a like we've i think we've said this a million times before if there's a good story to be told um it doesn't matter
0: if they're male, female, or whatever they are. It's uh, it's a good story to be told, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think Ridley Scott himself, he wasn't originally going to be directing this. He was talking about producing it. And the, the the screenwriter, Callie Curie, who won an Oscar for her screenplay for this, met with Ridley Scott and said, Ridley Scott, this is a great script. I want to produce. I want to help you make your movie. She might have even been thinking of directing herself, but I think that idea fell away. She wanted a proper director. And she and Ridley Scott became quite... I don't know protective of the film it was like it's got to be the right director and they spoke to loads of people and didn't find anyone they liked and eventually ridley scott got talked into doing it himself so he wasn't sure he could do it before he did it do you know what i mean so it wasn't just yeah. other people who weren't sure i think if you look at it now it's less of a surprise to because you know ripley is an iconic female character and it was it was ridley scott's idea to change that character from male to female um for the film so he'd, he'd always been in you know he'd early on been interested in having, you know, decent female characters. There were good female characters in other films he'd done. Personally, I think Daryl Hannah and Sean Young do their best work as actors in Blade Runner. Um, and there are good female characters in Someone to Watch Over Me in Black Rain. Cape Capshaw is unrecognisable from the character that she plays in, in Indiana Jones. She's really good. Only as a supporting character, but really good. So I think he's done quite a few good female characters, even though, as you say, not many of his films are female, you know, have a female lead, if you see what I mean. Um, but yeah, it's did this did this change your view of Ridley Scott after you saw this film? Like you say, he's already very established as who he is by now, but did did you see anything that you you'd not seen before from Ridley Scott in this movie? Um,
1: yeah, I don't think it's like any of his other films. I think you just looking at it, if you, if it, you it's two women on the run from the law. And There's obviously a bit more to that. I am kind of watering down the synopsis of that. Mm -hmm. But all of his other films are sci-fi in space, or big, you know, war epics, or like he's got a gangster film in there somewhere, or he's Matt Damon on Mars, and then he's kind of recently gone into like these you know, The Last Jewel was set in France in the 14th century, and the House of Gucci, but those those weren't films that he would typically make. And yeah, I mean, then, he's st- film st- Louis isn't categorized into the House of
0: Gucci kind of. No, there's cop thrillers, crime thrillers in in his in his films. Yeah. But again, this is from the, the the point of view of the you know, so to speak, criminals as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it shows with Ridley Scott. There are some things that that it is consistent with some of his other films. This is the third f- film in a row. He well, I mean, let me let me say it this way: the first four films that Ridley Scott directed all required him to design and and create the visuals for the film because he does the Duelist where he has to recreate a historical period, Alien where it's a spaceship out in space in the future, Blade Runner where he's got to create this future cyberpunk world in Los Angeles and legend which is a fantasy realm so his first four films Ridley Scott's got to create what you see his next three films are where he takes his camera and points at a real life environment and and wants to show it at its best but it's an environment that's already there he does someone to watch over me where he films in New York and he wants to he wants to show New York his way and then he does a similar thing with Black Rain which is principally set in Osaka and this is set in the Midwest so it does it is where Ridley Scott's gone and said instead of me creating the world I'm going to point My camera at the real world but show it you know do some Ridley Scott beautiful camera work but on a real setting so he brings the American Midwest to life here there's obviously road movies before where you see the big vistas of the American West and Midwest the the opening shot of this film is like of a like a a, a dusty road leading up to some mountains and it changes color so he's got some of his Ridley Scott touches in it but as you say it's very very character-led because I think Ridley Scott it's just surfing the story here, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it's, it's a real life setting with, you know, two just, I say normal kind of characters. You know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. these, these crazy kind of environments that are like pure fantasy or pure fiction. Mm-hmm. It's,
0: uh, you know, it's something that you can, I mean, sort of believe. Like, mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So, Yeah, I mean, for anyone who's not seen the film, the setting is is that Thelma and Louise, played by Gina Davison, Susan Sandham, respectively, are two women from a small town who need to get away from their lives. And the idea is they're going to go on a road trip to the mountains and, and you know, just, just spend some time together bonding and stuff. You know, it's a girl's road trip instead of a guy's road trip. But then they stop for a drink in a bar and and a local patron of the bar attacks Gina Davis's character Thelma and tries to rape her. Susan Sounden intervenes in the rape uh, and the guy ends up being shot dead and they go on the run. And the rest of the film is how they go on the run, but also because they've kind of exited normal society. sort of, They find a strange freedom, even though they've been pursued by the police and things get worse and worse for them and everything else. Um, You find all that believable, believable situation? Totally, yeah. I mean, I thought it was interesting. There's, there's some really interesting pivotal scenes. The bar before uh, Jim Davis's character is, is 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 assaulted. There's a pivotal scene which just goes to show Bradley Scott was, you know, and really knew what he was doing with the actors, because the, that guy starts chatting up Thelma, and without saying anything, you can just see from the looks in the eyes of the two women that Thelma is quite naive and inexperienced, and just sees the good in people and thinks this guy's just being friendly. And the way Susan Sounden looks, you immediately realise that she sees this bloke as a potential problem because of her own bad experiences. And just in that, without saying any words, really, without saying anything out loud, you go, oh, this is the two characters, the way they diverge from each other is just drawn very nicely in that scene. And then the fact that, again, no spoilers, because I think loads of people have seen this film, Susan Sounden doesn't shoot the guy in the act because it's the only way to save... Gina Davis, he's kind of walking away but he says something so disgusting to her that she snaps and we find out later why she snaps and just shoots the guy. So they can't even really claim self-defence and they go off on on the run and you go, oh wow, this is, you know, and then you find out more and more about the characters. Um, Although it's all about the actors, did you like the visuals? Did you like the way it looked?
1: Um, I didn't think it was like a film for its aesthetics, you know what I mean? It just felt... Mm. Rugged. They the, the The final chase is, you know, in a, a brilliant setting, and I thought that was very well shot. Mm. Um, but other than that, I wasn't blown away by, you know, the cinematography. It wasn't mm. like Blade Runner or uh, no, no.
0: Gladiator. Or he sets such a high standard. I mean, I do think it looks good. I think, I think Ridley Scott understood, in the same way when he does Black Rain and he sets it in Japan, there are certain things you need to show because, you know, you want to give the audience what they want, what, what, what makes this environment interesting, that's where you point the camera. So he does, they drive through the night and you see this really fascinating rocky outcrops, which looks really nice. I love the the, the dust trails behind the cars when they're driving around.
1: And then in that yeah. final
0: scene with all the cars, the the, the the dust trails behind each other, that's, and I think it's a nice sort of visual metaphor that their car is leaving a trail wherever they go. Uh, Nice Hans Zimmer score, I thought. That was early Hans Zimmer before he kind of went off and, you know, uh, did other things where he came into his own. Yeah. Uh, Terrific performances by Gina Davis and Susan Saradin. I thought Harvey Keitel was really good. Um, This was Brad Pitt's big break as an actor. I don't know what you thought of him in the role. Yeah, it was interesting seeing him like that
1: far down the billing, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. because he must have been about 26 or
0: 27 at the time yeah he had a slightly later break than the others when you think that like leonardo DiCaprio is, is barely at he's probably still in his in his teens when he's getting prominence he gets an oscar nomination aged about 19 or something brad Pitt had yeah. to wait a bit longer comparatively for his break and he plays a his character's a bit of a scumbag as well so it's really interesting to see him play that way um what do you th- I mean, the, the way the film portrays male and female characters on the whole, I mean, I think if this came out now, this would get caught up in the culture wars and it got some reactions back then, but I think because of the quality of the film, it, it you know, it, it came out winning, but I think there's, there is discussion of, you know, the, the way women are treated in a man's world and stuff like that. What did you think of the inverted commas message of the film? Yeah, I think it was a pretty strong and powerful story. And I think it
1: was told pretty well. Um, I think it's an important story to kind of tell, um, because it's not—it's not really an issue that's discussed mm-hmm. in film that much. It is obviously a very harrowing and dark issue that basically the whole plot of the story stems from. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ridley really Scott's discussed it um, again in the Last Duel, so it's something that he's not afraid to confront. And I don't think that film should be afraid to confront either, mm. um, especially given the kind of last eight or so years with the Me Too movement. Um, it's good that he was doing those films. Well, that, that film back then. Um, yeah, I think the message of it is
0: it's an important one. I mean, I thought it was interesting what they did with the tone of the um, uh, of the thing, because although it's got this really dark stuff, when Susan Saron and Gina Davis are off in the car, kind of being themselves and feeling a certain amount of freedom that they don't normally feel... they they crack a few jokes they're laughing and it's like it's quite funny it's quite an interesting tone that they're kind of laughing and the the bit where gina davis realizes that well they've lost all their money so she's going to rob a a convenience store it's quite you're kind of enjoying being along for the ride at that point aren't you yeah it's believable it's like it's like Mm -hmm. just
1: it's almost like two women that have kind of gone out for like like a couple of drinks Mm-hmm. and they're a bit tipsy
0: and they're just kind of getting carried away with things yeah and I think that the, the message of the film about their predicament I think carries much more emotional weight because it's not just oh woe is me you're not just being beaten over the head you actually see these characters come to life you know um, it's also interesting obviously I'm the kind of anarchy kind of reads up about this I think it's also an example of the kind of freedom that Ridley Scott gives his actors because Susan Sarandon came in and had her own ideas about what she, what she thought the message of the film was and Ridley Scott was like yeah sure whatever not whatever, but yes, I actually want your input into this and the whole scenes that they came up with because what you realise that what Ridley Scott does is that he, there's a scene where Susan Sarandon is talking about, you know, summing up where they are, what they've got to and what it means. And they kind of came up with that on the shoot because Susan Sarandon and Gene Davis were in the car all the time. I think when they stop and look around, I think that some things are going to come out when that when she's not doesn't have to check her wing mirrors. Do you know what I mean? And really, Scott was really good with that because what he likes to do is he likes to create the world and put the actors in it. And how the actors respond to that is really real and authentic. He's not the kind of actor that says, no, say it like this, do it like that. Even in something like White Squall, where there's loads of young actors, some of whom are making their film debut, he he, he cast them because he thought they were going to be good and then just let them get on with it. Um, You know, they're on a ship for real. They're actually on the water. Some of them are actually feeling seasick. So he doesn't try and, like prescribe their performances he points the camera and gets a real authentic performance out of them and when you've got good actors like Gina Davis and Susan Susan Sounding he captures some great moments as a result of that the other thing that he does is I found out this listening to a podcast about white school if you're an actor on a film set and you're about to do a scene or you're going to do a scene in a couple of days and you ask Ridley Scott what's what what should we be trying to do in the scene what's going to be like he draws you a picture because he's a really good he's a really good artist he studied at art college and he will draw you a, a, a storyboard he'll pick up a pen and a piece of paper and draw you the picture of what your scene's going to be like and actors love it because they go oh right I can now imagine how I'm going to be feeling and what I'm going to be doing in that scene and you, you know that's really interesting he doesn't need a green screen he can draw you what what um what you're going to be seeing in, in the picture oh, it's unreal isn't it yeah it's just the way he does things um there has been some discussion of the final shot. Roger Ebert was a a, a bit critical of it because it was a bit abrupt. What did you think of it? Because you get the final shot and then it fades out quite quickly and then you get these kind of like recap of the two of them together in the car. Did you like that? What did you think what did you think of the actually step back. What did you think of the final shot overall and the ending? How how did, how did, how did that work like, for you? Just the kind of recap of them. Mm. No, no overall. What do you think of the whole kind of ending and uh,
1: overall? Yeah, I think th- the ending is obviously it's quite fast-paced, isn't it? It's mm. like, oh, fucking hell, we're, they're backed into a literal corner here. Mm-hmm. Um And they just kind of think, well, there's, no much, there's not much
0: we can do, so let's just kind of go out, you know. It's, you like, know, Butch, it's like Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid, isn't it? Yeah. I'd rather go out on our own terms kind of thing.
1: But the, the the bit after it, I don't know why Roger Ebert's being critical of it. I thought it was quite nice. Maybe it, I could see why people might feel it a bit, Feel like it's a bit cheesy. I mm. didn't feel like it was abrupt or anything like that. Mm.
0: Yeah, like, just, maybe that's just me. Yeah, and no, I mean, most people see that ending is completely iconic. I think it shows up in like lists of best ever film endings and stuff. So uh, he was definitely in the minority on that. I just thought it was interesting because yeah. it, it it must be weird for you because when I saw this film, I, I I was watching this film in an era where you even after that film has been a hit and I've heard that it's won an Oscar and Ridley Scott got his first nomination, I could sit down and watch it not knowing what the ending was. Whereas you watching it after it's become so iconic that it's been parodied more times, you've seen more parodies of it than you've watched the film. I mean, I it must be weird watching it when you already know about it kind of thing.
1: Yeah, a little bit, but he, there's still an hour and 45, hour and 50, I can't remember how long the film was. Yeah, about that. Um, Other storytelling in it to kind of lead up to that. Moment, yeah, it gives, so. you, it gives
0: you the context, doesn't it? It means something yeah. now, doesn't it? Yeah, so... Well, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I've, uh, you know, got you to watch it. That was the classic. I've obviously seen this uh, before because um, I've seen all of his films, but uh, that's our classic. And, you know, as always, we hope that this inspires you, as, uh, you know, as listeners, to pick something off your classics list and watch it so that you're not missing out. But uh, that's Thelma and Louise. Unless you've got any other final comments to make, mate? No, I think that's uh, that's me. Okay. Well, in the words of uh, Junior Davis, let's keep going. And now for the Hidden Gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we continue our Ridley Scott theme and look at his less heralded debut feature which many people haven't seen but was a fascinating sign of things to come. The Hidden Gem for episode 44 is The Duelists. So James, Ridley Scott's debut 1977. Um, What's your background with this film? I know
1: that you wouldn't stop talking about it uh, when I first watched a Ridley Scott film. <laughs> that was my background, that you absolutely loved the film. Um, yes. That was my background, so you told me that it's two guys, a uh, true story, two guys, well, is it a true story, the characters' names, or it was just based off of, like, two guys that absolutely fucking despised each other back in, like, the 18th century?
0: Uh, Joseph Conrad wrote a short story, like a short novel or long short story um, called The Duel, um, which they changed to The Duelist because Spielberg had already done that film. Um, and he created fictional characters and he put them in slightly different situations, but it is based on two real guys who dueled with each other a minimum of 30 times over a period yeah, of 19 years. Fucking hated each other. Um... So yeah, based definitely, it is based on a true story, but I think what Joseph Conrad did was he said, I think this, given when it happened, during the Napoleonic Wars. I think this is a an interesting because he was a very he he loved telling ironic stories which kind of show up, you know, different things or absurdities that he wanted to pick up on. He thought this was a very good way to kind of reflect upon or comment on the war, the endless war that these guys were taking part in. They had their own endless conflict where by the end of it, it, it almost doesn't matter why it started. You just wonder if it can ever end. And I think there's an interesting comment on the Napoleonic War in that. Um the background to this film is Ridley Scott he started out in TV. He did episodes of things like Z Cars and stuff. He, he he directed, but he also did design, which explains why he you know created the films that he did. Um, he didn't re- he didn't feel like British TV. British TV is not the gateway to a big film career the way American TV is. It's not like Friedkin or Spielberg who they're making. F- tv in california getting noticed and getting a a gig in a in a big movie he felt it was a bit of a dead end so he went and did commercials made a name for himself with commercials and obviously learned that you know you need to make a big impact in a short time if you're making a commercial because you've only got 30 seconds to a minute and he and a number of people like his brother tony alan parker adrian Lyne, hugh hudson a number of people who wanted to do big films in the in you know going you know going forward from that made commercials in the Ridley Scott company and then he decided right I've done this enough times I want to make a film so he's about 40 when he makes his first film but he's got a lot of experience he's a huge Kubrick fan Kubrick's done Barry Lyndon and while this is a very different story to Barry Lyndon although there's a a bit of an ironic voiceover which is similar to that Ridley Scott loved the way Kubrick did such a beautiful job of recreating the period Barry Lyndon's set in the mid 18th century this starts at the end of the 18th century into the, the 19th um and it it's kind of I, I felt it was like you could look at a painting in the National Gallery of like France in the the nineteenth century, you know, in eighteen hundred. And if one of those paintings in the National Gallery came to life, that's what this film looks like. I don't know what it thought, like, what the visuals looked like to you in this film, mate.
1: Yeah, it, it would obviously. It felt like you were there at the time. I think not necessarily just the visuals, like the this, like the cinematography of it. But obviously, the the art direction was I
0: thought was brilliant mm-hmm. for a debut film as well. Um, and not much money. Nine hundred thousand dollars is the budget of this film, yeah, the equivalent is, of four and a half million dollars today. Absolutely fuck all. Yeah, it's less than a tenth of of Kubrick's budget for Barry Lyndon. Um, which is mental. It's interesting. The central characters are played by Keith Carradine, an American actor, as Dubert, an aristocratic, charming establishment figure who's an officer in the French army. Harvey Keitel is Faro, an officer with a more sort of common, you know, common people background, big Napoleon supporter, whose lifestyle choice appears to be taking exception to things and challenging people to duels. Uh, Farrow seriously injures a friend of the mayor in one of these duels. The commanding officer of the regiment orders his arrest and sends Dubert to fetch him. They don't really know each other, but Dubert has to go and get the guy and go say, look, I'm sorry, but I've been sent to grab you. We've got to take you back to the garrison. The general's really pissed off. Let's go. Doesn't think that very controversial, but Farrow takes exception and challenges him to a duel. And that kicks off this series of duels that go on and on and basically almost take over their lives. I mean, there's a bit where... Keith Carradine's really badly injured in one of the duels and he goes and gets sword fighting lessons so the next time he fights this guy he's going to be able to win so it becomes their almost like their their life. Obsession yeah. yeah, yeah. And then in the background to this the Napoleonic Wars, up to and including the retreat from Moscow and the end of the war is almost happening in the background to these guys dueling with each other Um, it's um, what did you think of Harvey Cartel and Keith Carradine as the leads? Were you the sort of people you'd expect to see in a in a, a British director's uh, historical drama about France in, in the early 1800s.
1: No, not necessarily, but, it, but Harvey Keitel and, um, I suppose Keith Carradine was a massive name, but it was um, yeah. from that family of Carradines that were quite big. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, I didn't find it too unusual. Um yeah, the background to it was, was that they're trying to raise money to make the film and the producers gave Ridley Scott a list of name actors that would get the film made because they're quite well known. And he looked on the list and went, oh, those two, they're interesting. Um, and I think he thought that, you know, Carradine, you know, he belonged to the Hollywood establishment. You know, he was the son of a famous actor and he was tall and he was already a big star. And Harvey Keitel came from Brooklyn and was like a much more rough around the edges. And he thought that they were good sort of embodiments of the characters they were playing. Um they didn't try too hard to change their accents or anything, because they thought that you know Kaitel sounded rougher than Carradine and he sounded smoother. So they just thought it'll sound, it'll seem natural. People will get used to it. Um, did you, did you take sides in the duel, the, the series of duels? Did you side with one character more than the other over the over the course of the film?
1: Um, mm, I felt it was a. I know that it, it kind of starts off in a kind of daft way where the, who is it that asks
0: him, is it Harvey Keitel that says we need to go speak to the general? No, I think, I, th- oh, I can't remember now. I think it's Carradine who says, it's t- oh, I've got to take you back to the general. Car- Carradine essentially goes and takes yeah, Keitel. Yeah, so I think I sympathise with him a little bit more because he was just under orders kind of thing. He got dragged into it. Um, and you see more of his life. You see him get married. You see him with, you know, we see him more with his kind of team and everything, his, his, his comrades and stuff. Yeah, But I mean, I think that's by its nature. Keitel's quite an isolated figure by the end. Did you feel sorry for Keitel at the end? He's left with no friends or anything. And, you know, he's actually on the execution list because he's too much of a Napoleon supporter. Did you feel sorry for him at all? Not really. He sort of brought it on himself. Yeah. With regards to the duels, at least. The Napoleon thing, eh, that was just France back then, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, But Yeah. I could kind of understand Keitel looking at this poncy, aristocratic soldier, because at the time, before Napoleon came along, someone like Keitel would never have been able to become an officer at all. It was all, you know, only if you were like from a noble family could you get ahead. And I think he sort of looked at these people, going, who the fuck are you? Um, but yeah, he just he just wanted to fight for the sake of it almost. And David Carradine gets dragged into it and like picks up the obsession. Um it's, I mean, it's interesting. For on such a low budget, I thought it was amazing when they did the retreat from Moscow and everything. And they can't have had a lot of, um, you know, they shot that in like Avimo, Um because, you know, they couldn't, you know, they, they, they just, you know, had to f- make use of like more, more easy to use locations. Um, but he manages to do a lot with a little. And the ret- I, I remember the retreat, when I first saw the film, the retreat from Moscow was really like, these guys are about to, about to freeze to death and they still find time to have a duel. I thought that was really effective, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, overall, did you like it? I mean, did you like it as a Yeah, as, I thought it was really, really good. It's an interesting commentary on the war as well as a commentary on the two characters, right? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. So listen, this is this is a hidden gem which we're absolutely recommending. I mean, the fact is Ridley Scott is a famous director. Maybe a lot of people have already seen this, but it doesn't get as much of a mention as other films of his. It's really beautifully made. It looks gorgeous just because he brings the French countryside to life so much. And it's it's like it's like the perfect size and scope of story for a debut film. And yet it manages to, it, it, because of the way he builds this beautiful backdrop, you know, the final shot of Harvey Keitel looking out over the, over the hills, looking like Napoleon in, in, in that famous painting of Napoleon at Elba. It's just like, mm. I mean, you, you you'll probably recognise some of it if you've seen any of the kind of slightly homemade trailers for the Napoleon film. You know, before they came came up with a proper trailer, people were making their own and they were cannibalising footage from this. Um, but it looks gorgeous. I mean, just seeing some of the morning mist, the pictures. It's just it's just lovely. You could you could take many many stills from this film and stick it on your wall, couldn't you? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's us. We're definitely recommending this as a hidden gem. We think this is really worth watching for people who haven't seen it. Um, especially if you like historical, you know, w- you know, war-based films, especially if you like Ridley Scott. So, that's our hidden gem and get it out and watch it. Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at one of the all-time great stories of unrealised film, the grand folly that eluded a master filmmaker just as it did so many others over the years. The one that got away for episode 44 is Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon. So, obviously, this isn't an unrealised Ridley Scott project, but we thought it was an interesting film to compare to the Napoleon film that Ridley Scott's just made. Um, what did you know about Stanley Kubrick's attempts to make Napoleon prior to us agreeing to do this for the pod, mate?
1: Not much, but obviously I did a little bit of kind of reading into it, just to kind of gather an idea of what he was going to try and do with it, like yeah. allegedly. And, um, and what did you find out? Um it didn't seem like it was going to do, obviously, what Ridley Scott was doing, because I don't think anyone saw what Ridley Scott was doing um, with the whole relationship and dynamic mm. with Josephine.
0: Um, I mean, they'd made Josephine and Napoleon films before. I think Marlon Brando's film is a lot more about Josephine than it is about the battles. I think Kubrick was trying to do the fucking whole show, wasn't he? Yeah, I think he was trying to do it all. Um And and by this is where other people have fallen down as well. I mean, you, we can talk a little bit more about what happened with Napoleon's project. But there's a French director called Abel Gantz. He did a four-hour Napoleon film in the silent era, which was meant to be the first of six films he was going to do about Napoleon. So it only covers some of his like early parts, but he couldn't he couldn't get the other projects off the ground. So he did he achieved one sixth of his vision. Charlie Chaplin wanted to play Napoleon. I think he had a similar kind of idea that he's already done. Hitler in his style, and I think he wanted to do more serious drama and he fancied playing Napoleon. Um, that didn't come off, maybe because people didn't think Charlie Chaplin could play a character like that. Various other people have tried and failed. Um, what, I mean, are you aware of the timeline of, of when this was going to happen? What did you find out about that? I know he wanted to do it pretty much as soon as the success of 2001
1: became apparent. Um, he planned, obviously, to do this. L- this film um yeah he, I, he, he looked at like how he was going to do it when he was going to film it how he would do the battle scenes and that kind of thing um
0: but, yeah because the, logi- the logistics of doing that then would be very different to now right what i mean what did you find out about what he was going to try and do then i mean there's all sorts of stories what stories did you find out about what his logistics were going to be
1: i know that he was going to tr- do a lot of this filming of the battle scenes in Romania because mm-hmm. he'd spoken to the Romanian army and they'd committed tens of thousands of men. Yeah. Um, for the the battle scenes, um, and then it looked like he he was sort of like kind of trying to piece together how he would do the, the scale of it because obviously Napoleon was on a massive scale, um, and then I think just down to the cost of how much this would have cost to make, especially back then, I think it was just kind of... The plug was pulled on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, the timeline of him trying to do this was between about 1967 and 1971, because the way these things work is film directors often have an eye on their next film while they're finishing their previous one. So he's finishing off 2001, and he's already starting to think about Napoleon. Then 2001, The Space Odyssey comes out in 1968. Now, there's interesting timing of this, because... Uh, 2001 in 1968 was the last film he did with MGM or with any other studio apart from Warners and Warners kind of offered him, you know, said you can make whatever movie you you want, but that was only after he'd kind of tried and failed to do this. Between 1967 and 71, he was really trying to get this off the ground. And as you say, the scope was massive that he was going to use 50,000 Romanian soldiers, uh, to be the extras in his films. Um, all sorts of stories come out about this. I don't know if you read that um, for any extras not already employed in the Roman- Romanian army, he wanted them to undergo four months of military training so they'd look realistic in the scenes. Christ. And you think that's probably more training than an actual soldier got in the Honey On It Wars. They didn't get four months of training. <laughs> here's, hmm. a, here's a rifle, off you go. Um he was interested in techniques and cameras required to recreate the period and look natural. Um, it, this is where he first got his idea of using these specialized cameras that only NASA had, because what you could do is you could you could light a room with candles and lamps the way an 18th century room would be uh, and, and film that because these cameras could pick up more light. Because back then you would try and you would have to put film lights, you know, those big metal things with the flaps around them above and around and everything else and try and make it look like candlelight. And Kubrick was like, no, I want it to really look real. Um, So he was getting really obsessive about that. Um, And obviously he did so much research. He filled boxes and boxes and boxes of archive boxes with material about Napoleon. And like you say, it is massive. Napoleon came to prominence in the early 1790s and was basically the only my only person people had on their minds in European history until eighteen fifteen. So for twenty five years he's completely in charge of or completely changing France. You know the school districts in France are the way Napoleon set them out. The law in France about how high your hedge can be in your garden is a law written while Napoleon w- w- was Emperor you know, and he had all these military campaigns and he knocked down a, a, a royalist rebellion and had all these battles and married Josephine and then tried to do all these peace treaties when they didn't work out. He went back to war. It, and, and every time, you know, Kubrick, you know, read a book, he read every book on Napoleon. Every time he read a book, he went, yeah, I've got another idea for the script. So the film was getting bigger and bigger and MGM are going, what the fuck? <laughs> we can't afford this. Um, do you, did you did you hear any ideas for the people who might play Napoleon the people ben? who considered I didn't actually.
1: That was the one thing I didn't manage to see because I saw that the the plug plug got pulled, and I thought, well, anything after that's just sheer speculation.
0: Yeah, there's not a lot about that online. The, the the book I've got that I sort of that I read about to get sort of ideas for these films had this, and a lot of the other stuff I had to go and sort of check check online. But this is, I think, this is in the art, the Stanley Kubrick archives. Um, he was interested in Peter O'Toole as Napoleon. Okay. A Bit tall and skinny, I would have thought. Um, yeah. Alec Guinness. Who's probably too old? Um, Peter Ustinov, I'm not quite um, Jean-Paul Belmondo, who actually would be a really interesting person to play Napoleon. Actually, the French actor uh, Oscar Werner was actually offered the part, but then the plug was pulled, and you know, n- never got there. And then after Oscar Werner, when Kubrick was still trying to pull something together, he um, he offered it to David Hemmings, who you might recognize from Gladiator. You know the guy with the massive eyebrows doing the announcements in the Coliseum? Yes. When he was a much younger guy, he was a very fashionable 60s actor, and he was offered it. And Ian Ian Holm was in consideration for it. And he went on to actually play Napoleon like three or four times in other things. Oh, okay. Including the Terry Gilliam film Time Bandits. So, uh, it's, it's hard to pick a... a a single theme from such a wide range of actors I mean have you got any thoughts on what kind of Napoleon Kubrick might have been trying to create there from what you've read and from that list of actors my problem with
1: this is that he did Full Metal Jacket and that felt like he didn't manage to get the scale of the Vietnam War down at all Mm -hmm. Um, and that's all you can't apply one problem like a problem with one film and apply it to another however um, I've never looked at Kubrick's films um and gone the scale of that really mm-hmm. impressed me even um what's the other one is it Paths of Glory mm-hmm. is that the one I'm thinking of the mm-hmm. the war film I never I didn't think the scale of that and obviously that's way back that was like really early Kubrick um I was I never thought oh yeah the scale of that is uh you know next level so I, I did want to but it did seem like he was really interested in like the sheer gravity and the volume of this you know film mm-hmm. so maybe he would have and i'm just like you know flapping my gums over nothing but yeah you're, you're, like-
0: you're right that in all the films you've watched he didn't get that scale across he wasn't making that kind of film we'll come back to that let's come back to that point because the, the way the story ends kind of maybe answers your question on that um but have you have you Again, not many people, I think, have the the list of people he was considering for Josephine as well, because Josephine was going to be part of the story. I and, know and Audrey Hepburn was one of them. Oh, so you did find that? Okay, that is on there. I I, I that. I couldn't see anyone book. for Napoleon, but I could see that Josephine was. Uh... Did you see any other Josephine nominees? Um, I did not, no. It was just, the, the, I saw the, Audrey Hepburn, uh, I thought. I'll ooh. be interested to in see what your reaction are to these. Vanessa Redgrave was one of them. Okay. Now, I mean, again, she was another big actor of the time, you know, uh, and. It is interesting that she, the character that she plays in Mission Impossible turns out to be the mother of Vanessa Kirby, who then goes on to play Josephine. That's sort of a tiny, tiny little link between the two of them there. And the other one he thought of, which blew my mind, is Julie Andrews. Okay, I just can't see at all. I don't know where that was. She was very, you know, Disney, wasn't she? Like, yeah, I just, I mean, the thing is, Julie Andrews was probably would have jumped at the chance to do something other than what she was known for. So who knows? She might have thrown herself at it. I've seen her be really good in some atypical stuff for her, um, yeah. but it's still weird. It's still a hard one to see her as. Um, so yeah, this was for me. This was the first sign of Kubrick starting to become his own worst enemy. When he talked about him trying to do the whole thing and building it up, he got so obsessive with this. The scope of this was too much. I mean, bear in mind that from this period, the gaps between his films go from three years to four years to five to seven to 12. And he takes longer and longer over the films that he's going to make, I think because he starts doing too much. There are boxes and boxes of material that Stanley Kubrick did for this. Enough for 10 films. Historical information, photographs, costumes, props things he's written down from books that he's read. He wanted to do all the battles. Um, He, uh, except for the sea battles, because back then it was seen that the sea battles were like impossibly expensive. Um, But he could just kept doing more and adding more details. And I don't know how much of this is Kubrick doing that and how much of this is the subject being so big that it gets out of control. I mean, does Napoleon feel like too big a subject to do all of like that? Everyone else has only done a bit of Napoleon. I wouldn't, maybe out of control, but
1: out of control through just wanting to cover the like the story enough. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't feel like it was getting out of control because they were just gonna piss the budget away on you know absolute nonsense. It was like, oh, I want to tell this thing about Napoleon because it's mm-hmm. about Napoleon. So I suppose yeah. yes, it's it's him being his own worst enemy, but not with like negative connotations. Do you get what I mean? Mm-hmm. It it was a oh, I really want to tell this story. I want to tell it properly, kind of thing.
0: Yeah, um, I mean. At the, at the actual time of this, the, the the real reason that this got the plug pulled on it wasn't like Stanley Kubrick admitting failure at that point so much. Um, it's that the studio that he had a deal with was MGM and they're going through terrible financial struggles at the time. And they eventually got bought and they're still around, but they, they were hardly even releasing films back then. And the idea of them green lighting something of this size is, you know, not. Really, not realistic, and they just weren't going to go ahead. They just weren't prepared to put the money in that Kubrick needed for the movie. And at the same time, round about the time, like 6970, that this is happening. Uh, a Russian film director called Sergei Bondarchuk does his epic version of War and Peace, which is like 10 hours long and gets released in installments, which covers the Napoleonic Wars in great detail. It has Napoleon in it. It's not about Napoleon. It's about the Russian families and how the war affects them. But it's it's the same subject and it's got Moscow and all the big battles, right? Um, and then Waterloo comes out in 1970, which is got Rod Steiger as Napoleon and Christopher Plummer as, as Wellington and just does the Build-Up to and then The Battle of Waterloo. And it's like two films have come out, big films have come out covering the same story. So it's like, what's the appetite for another film in such a short space of time? And both of those films were financial flops, even though they're both regarded as very good films now They didn't make any money at the time. So it just, that the plug got pulled. The interesting thing was that after, after that, Stanley Kubrick signed, as I said, that deal with Warner, who said, you can do whatever you want. But he never formally like submitted the script to Warner to say, let's do Napoleon, even though he had quite a free hand with them. He did Clockwork Orange and you know and, and other films after that. Um, so maybe maybe Kubrick felt like he couldn't do it. And here's the thing about do, doing that scale is that he, he ended up using everything that he learned or a lot of the stuff he learned from Napoleon film to make the film Barry Lyndon instead which covers the mid and sort of slightly later part of the 18th century and the seven years war. He uses all of that stuff. He borrows the cameras from NASA and lights candle light and recreates this beautiful historical period. Um, so he kind of did what I think is his best film um, with what he learned from Napoleon. So he didn't do Napoleon. He did this other film set in the period And he got loads of extras, and there are some massive battle scenes in that. So he did end up once doing that kind of scale in Barry Lyndon. Although, interestingly, from what you say, the battles themselves don't play an enormous part of the story. Barry Lyndon is this kind of Chancer character who ends up in the army because he's got to escape from a situation. And then, as soon as he can, he deserts and becomes a, you know, seeks his fortune elsewhere. But you do get the big battle scenes. But. It wasn't the primary focus of of, of what Napoleon... Uh, sorry, what Napoleon... Kubrick and Napoleon become interchangeable, of what uh, he, he does. But he never actually tried to do Napoleon again after that period. I mean, have you got any thoughts as to why that might be? Um, No, I hadn't actually thought about that. He toyed with the idea of doing it as a TV series, but, I mean, you're talking about the mid-70s. TV. You, don't, you He hasn't got HBO, do you know what I mean? He hasn't got, you know... You know, Netflix. That financial or, or, power. Or, yeah, yeah, so it you know, it, it didn't really follow it up. Um How would things be differently different, do you think, for Kubrick if he'd got this done? It's hard to say, isn't it? I mean so. you, you you wouldn't you wouldn't have Barry Lyndon. I don't think he'd have gone and made Barry Linden after this if he if he, he would have done Napoleon and that would have been it and you know that Maybe not even do the shining. Do you know what I mean? Because you mm. might think this is an absolutely. It would have been a monster
1: success if he'd got it right, mm-hmm. and he might have chosen to go down a different path of the mm-hmm. styles of films that he wanted to. do. He might have done mm-hmm. The Shining, regardless. It might have been a pet project. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know.
0: To- I think it would have. It was a real fork in the road in his career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a fork in the road, and we'll never truly know. Um, but if you want to get an idea of what it'd be like, Barry Lyndon has some great period detail, which showed you what what Kubrick was trying to do with the light and the filming and the techniques. And it's a great film in its own right. And for contemporary films about Napoleon, you can watch the bondi version of War and Peace, which is a huge undertaking, but you can definitely watch Waterloo, which is a Napoleon film made in 1970 and has, it's some very impressive battle scenes. It'd be, I think it'd be interesting to compare that and the, the, the the way the battle of Waterloo is portrayed in, um, although for a less period of time in, uh, in the, the new uh, Ridley Scott film. But uh that, that's a big one. And that, that's that's a real rabbit hole. There is so much information on this if you really want to uh, dig down into it. Um, there are archives that you can actually visit and you can open the boxes and see what Ridley Scott was doing if you're really keen. Um, so this, this is major. Um, but yeah, that is the one that got away. Uh, that is the film that Kubrick, you know, the one film that Kubrick couldn't quite do. We close the features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. Later on, we will also discuss a remake restoration. Once we finished asking if a remake was unnecessary and should be removed, we will suggest a remake that should happen because it needs to be done right this time. This month, we look at how a filmmaker renowned for brilliant epic films set in the distant past managed to make one that nobody liked or wanted. The remake hate watch for episode 44 is Exodus Gods and Kings. So James obviously because this is Ridley Scott month we had to kind of look at you know specifically like remakes that he's done and I don't think you could really call many of his films sort of remakes in any sense except for this one because it pretty much follows the story of like like the 10 commandments the Charlton Heston film from the 50s so in that sense it's a remake because this is pretty much a modern version of that story the story of Moses. Um what's your history uh, with this film Extra's Gods and Kings? Yeah.
1: Oh, it's fucking shite. Yeah, I couldn't be arsed with
0: it. You didn't go and see it at the cinema or anything, though?
1: No? no, I th- I caught it when it came out. I think. I didn't like the look of it in the trailer. It looked like. It looked a bit Zack Snyder 300 y, which was fine once, but then they made another 300, and then it just felt like any f- like sort of film set. Ancient times had to look like that, and yeah, no.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny really because I think the, the 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 problem with this film is that it was made at all because these these films like this belong in the 1950s. um By the time they started doing a couple of biblical films in in the mid 60s, it was already looking dated. It's like Cecil B. DeMille sort of revived Cecil B. DeMille started doing biblical epics in like the 30s. And then when you had Technicolor and like bigger scale, he did some color versions of ones. But like absolutely the limit of like the audience being prepared to watch something like this is like 1959 with Ben-Hur. And doing this in the 2010s just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, I mean, a historical epic set in ancient Egypt directed by Ridley Scott? Fucking yes, please. You know, a version of Cleopatra or Nefertiti, one of the other pharaohs but I just don't understand why he thought this, that this would work, right? I mean, I, I just can't even see his motivations, can you?
1: In a sense, yes, because in, like, films about ancient Egypt have usually been quite bad. Um, I've not been impressed with many films set in ancient Egypt, if any of them. So, and I guess this, is, this even predates ancient mm-hmm. Egypt, if you know what I mean, but... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
0: it's just I understand
1: be, to an extent, but not really.
0: It's just because he chooses to do this story, he just falls into all of these traps. Basically, the studio says you can only have this budget if we have lots of big-name actors, right? And by big-name actors, I mean big names in America, right? So there's going to be a lot of white actors playing, like... you know, Egyptian. Egyptian, and I know they were, like, Macedonian, but they're at least going to look like Lebanese people. They're at least going to look like people from, like, you know, people of colour from the Mediterranean. And, you know... Joel Edgerton is not going to cut it for that. Whereas, if he'd done a film about Cleopatra, you could have big name white actors playing the Romans. You could have Christian Bale as Mark Antony, right? Yeah. And, and find a really interesting kind of actress to play Cleopatra in a Ridley Scott, you know, and, and then you get to see Egypt. Yes, please. This, the other problem you've got is, yeah, you've got some good battle scenes and everything else, but the meat of this story is the plague of frogs and the parting of the red sea and all of that stuff and you were immediately in problems because christian bale comes in and says i'm going to play moses it's like well am i playing moses as someone who really has seen a burning bush or am i playing moses as someone who's like having these visions or whatever and it's like no it's like you've got there's no way you can do this story as oh maybe it was you know maybe maybe it was god maybe it wasn't the only way this story works is if you literally believe that god visited these plagues on people and and killed the firstborn child and, and part of the Red Sea. And that just doesn't make sense to a modern audience. And to try and make this in this kind of way doesn't work for the people who do like these things. You the know, people who watch the faith-based films, they'll maybe watch Mel Gibson doing his Jesus film, but otherwise they're looking for like God's not dead and all of that stuff. So I don't know who this film is for. It just, it just doesn't work. The whole thing feels pointless. I don't think it's incompetently made, although I, I agree with you, I don't like that kind of 300 style look. Um... But on the whole it's just a case of all the while you're watching it you're going yeah but it's moses it's the bible i, I don't get this this is why why am i watching this at christian Bale and not charlton heston it just it just doesn't work it goes into my head and my head just rejects it and says no this this isn't right do you know what i mean yeah it
1: just, you just you know when you you know when we go to the cinema and we've sat down we've got a drink we've got a popcorn The trailers have come on. You know, they know like, not the shite trailers for, like, a new car or, like, a new phone or a new perfume. When the film trailers come on, that's when you sort of, like, put your phone away, put it on silent, turn it off, whatever, and you start watching the films. And we'll just go to each other, we'll go, shite, shite, yeah, I'm not going to go see that. That's going to be awful. You just sort of knew
0: this was going to be bad. Yeah, it's not one where you go, I quite fancy that. You just look at it and go no I don't want to see a biblical epic by Ridley Scott with Christian Bale as Moses because he can't do he can't do I don't know you're not going to get the money if you say actually I'm going to tell that story from the point of view of the pharaoh like and see if I can find some historical context for the biblical myth no you can't do it as oh this didn't actually this wasn't actually supernatural this you know do the story of the Egyptian's you know, letting the the Hebrews go or the Hebrews leaving. You have to do the Bible story. So you're forced to do a movie that nobody fucking wants. And it doesn't matter if the, you know, this, the CGI is actually a bit shit for this. And I think this is the one time where I say Ridley Scott's let himself down with his visual effects, right? Um, But it's like, it's not incompetently kind of staged in film. There's the chariot stuff is quite exciting around the, around the, the hill and stuff, but it's just like, it's just it's just a story i don't want to watch you know yeah
1: no it was just it was shape, and yeah. it's 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 just, a,
0: it's it a, gonna be it's just really. an example of the the majority of the time when ridley scott makes a film that isn't very good and i would say ridley scott's made he's not made that many films that are actually bad he's made four or five films that are actually bad out of 28 which is, isn't bad but most of the time when he does a film that doesn't work it's because he shouldn't have done it at all yeah, the idea for the film is a it's a flawed idea for a film, and this is the mo- this is I think one of his worst films, and it's his most flawed idea for a film. Yeah, no, and, I agree. and that's all it is. I, I think that gives us more time to spend on the the remake restoration, which is Prometheus. And I think the idea behind this is I think there's a lot of people who were expecting something else, or expecting something better than what they actually got, and I think this this film promised something and then delivered something else. I mean when when you went, when you watched Prometheus I don't know how much of how immersed you were in the whole alien legend by then was alien a big thing for you when you first saw Prometheus I really enjoyed it um like I'm not a big horror guy but I enjoyed
1: um alien just for the story and like just the kind of setting that it was in mm-hmm. and I was looking forward to Prometheus because I thought oh let's see where these uh these aliens you know the, the origin of alien comes from and yeah it was a damp squib wasn't
0: it yeah i mean the the background to the the film and why it went wrong is that i think ridley scott was had his arm twisted a little bit into this has to be you know uh, this has to have certain things in it if it's going to be in the alien universe and um they wrote a script which then got rewritten and it got rewritten, I think, because it can be more of a trilogy and to try of engineer events happening. A lot of silly things have to happen. The original script didn't, I don't think it had the idea that the engineers are actually us and our DNA is that. And it like it's, it's not creationist. I think the original script was that the, the engineers came to our planet and interfered with our evolution and our development. And, and the earth was different as a result of their intervention which is kind of a flip side of the whole Star Trek w- world where you're not supposed to interfere with civilizations less advanced than yours and then when they go and discover the world they find out that the engineers are um uh, uh you know not very nice and we're playing God with our with our humans and the uh they're looking for the the planet they're looking for is the actual moon where the original alien ship lands. And that's where they find out that these engineers are more interested in creating weapons than in uh, than in any kind of great period stuff. And then the action is built around that. So you do find out about the space jockey. You do find out about, you know, the um uh you know the xenomorphs bursting out of people's chests, but I think it was more of a one-off leading up to the rest of Alien. And they took it in this whole new direction for the trilogy. And all the stuff that you think is silly from the prometheus film the cesarean section the uh, the the different alien creatures and the uh, all, all of that stuff the stuff for david was introduced in Damon lindelof's uh, draft and all the silliness just came about then and in terms of remaking it i mean i've got my thoughts on how i'd remake it but I don't, what, what are your thoughts on on, how, on what would work better for this right, well i'd take away all the fucking running away from things yeah cuz that was just fucking dying cuz you can't run sideways that's got to go um I, I assume you don't I assume you don't want the bit where um Numi gives herself a cesarean section and invalidates everything that happens in every other film about it being fatal if an alien impregnates you.
1: Yeah. Um that was nonsense. No one's I don't think it's actually possible for someone to give themselves a cesarean section let alone to a fucking nine-foot alien. And, and, and
0: then take part in action scenes straight afterwards. No period of recuperation yeah. is required. That's bollocks.
1: Yeah, nonsense. Uh, I would get rid of Guy Pearce's character. He pissed me off.
0: There's, there was. I don't understand why you hire Guy Pearce and then age him up and then have him turn up as an old yeah. guy.
1: Guy Pearce is like so much more than just giving him a walking
0: stick and some prosthetics. Ca- cast an old guy to play an old guy unless you've got some sort of specific reason, which is completely lost yeah. in this film.
1: Uh, get rid of Michael Fassbender, or give him a better, just make his character better. Mm-hmm. Just don't make him a kind of fucking weird,
0: like asexual, fucking creepy droid thing. He needs this... a better motivation because essentially he infects humans with a deadly virus just because he can out of curiosity, and the vague motivation for this is that humans created him just because they could. So why couldn't he create new life? And it immediately begs the question: if you've got the if you've got the ability to make a creature as intelligent as that. How does it not occur to you not to make him a psychopath?
1: Yeah, I just didn't like the. Where is vibe the programming? That, yeah, the vibe that I got from it—they kind of it seemed like they wanted to make him like. I'm not saying asexual to be a bad thing, but they just tried to make him kind of like. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, so, like, I mean,
0: I thought what would be better is if the, what if the aging billionaire has essentially used the mission as, an, as a way to find technology that will prolong his life, or he's got these mystical ideas about meet what the engineer is going to be like. He's like a quirky, strange billionaire CEO who's misusing, you know, scientific knowledge for his own ends. But he's basically created David to, like once David's actually helped him with the mission, he's going to become like the vessel for like the old man's consciousness. And once David realizes that he's only been built to just be a, 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 a almost like an overcoat, get out, yeah. then he re, then he rebels, um, and not just acting in a cruel way, but just rebels and complicates the story. I thought that would be a better better motivation for him because really he's just there. He's an antagonist without any real motivations, and it makes the story a bit silly, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, we get rid of the weird fucking albinos that drink the. Uh the potion and fall off the, the cliff at the start or mm. whenever that happens because that was nonsense as well. That's just not really explored properly. I think you need to come up with a better origins for what the aliens are because I know that, like, in the Predator films, the Predator created the alien because they wanted something to hunt. Fuck that, been that. Mm-hmm. But I think you need to come up with a better... I think it would have been much better if they just landed on this planet looking for something else. Mm-hmm. Like you say, looking for a way to prolong... Um, Guy Pierce's life, and
0: yeah, accidentally and that they come that, across that,
1: like just like just like these aliens living on this planet. Or they just, experiment on those aliens and change them into something this dangerous or something like that. Yeah, maybe these aliens just live in like this planet and they just they're just cutting about chilling. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the is it the RDA? Mm-hmm. They the um no not the RDA that's fucking Avatar. What's the fucking name of the company? Oh,
0: Wayland yutani
1: That's it, Wayland yutani um, maybe they are. They come down and they see these aliens and they think, "Oh, these." Let Let's take these in for experiments, and then they find these things. But they they balls it up, and these aliens end, end up becoming like these super predators, mm-hmm. like these super monsters that you know kind of infect everyone that way. As opposed to, let's spend trillions just going to a random planet, like you say, because Numira Pass mm-hmm. just has a feeling. Um, yeah, uh, just rehash it. If I'm being quite honest, just i I I don't know I don't know precisely what i do, but I think Ridley Scott looking on looking at it probably would know what to do. I think he probably wouldn't admit it because he's quite he's an old cantankerous stubborn yeah. kind of guy. Yeah. But you, you need to get rid of the weird kind of be the bald beings. You need to make Guy Pierce more useful. You need to make. Uh, Michael Fassbender more interesting and more useful as opposed to the weird kind of you know mm-hmm. they seemed like they were just trying to. I don't know. I feel like they were taking the piss out of like. I don't know, it it felt weird. I got a weird vibe from the way Michael Fassbender, it felt like they were just kind of mocking like people in real life, like just those kind of stereotypes. Yeah. I don't know why I got a bad vibe from that. I didn't like it at all.
0: Yeah, now, I mean, I'm okay with the idea of this being an alien prequel if they sort of execute the idea better, but I have a, maybe a left field suggestion that how about not setting this in the alien universe at all? How about taking that interesting premise of us having evidence of like intelligent life out there and going and finding it and it not being what we expected and just setting it in a different universe and just creating something completely new. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it wouldn't be alien, but it would be, you know, well, you know, because I think the original idea was that the aliens interfered in our um, evolution. What if, right, if we'd been left to our own devices, the Neanderthals would have become the dominant species, not Homo sapiens? But because they interfered with us, or you know, helped us out, you know, wiped out the Nantos or something, we we became like the 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 dominant species, and all the things that have gone wrong, us destroying the planet and, and everything else, is because they interfered with our evolution instead of letting the the maybe more you know the Nantos are actually gender and more intelligent than people realize, and you, you get this kind of um, sort of slightly kind of dystopian view that oh well maybe you know maybe humans don't actually deserve the situation that they're in. And when they find the engineers, the engineers hate them, the engineers fight them. But at the same time, I I thought it was really quick where you go, oh, yeah, our DNA is engineer DNA. We were created. We didn't evolve. And all the scientists are just sidelined at that point. What if the billionaires actually brought in Numi Rapace and um, budget Tom Hardy um, because they believe in his kind of crank science? And actually, all the other scientists actually believe in sort of proper evolution and rebel. And you have a huge conflict between them on the ship. And then when David rebels against what he's being used for, it you know, they're all divided and 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 you've got all these conflicts among the crew. And when you realize that the engineers were just toying with us and they've accidentally created, I don't know, um, bioweapons or something that's absolutely terrifying and horrible. And they actually don't even like us and want to get rid of us. You've got this, you know, huge battle on the planet. I'm... I, look, I'm okay with it being being the aliens, right? But I, I don't actually mind if they'd taken it off in a completely new direction and just explored the interesting ideas that they that they started with. Am I taking am I taking the difference too far? No, I think anything other than what we ended
1: up getting would have been more interesting. I think uh, they're trying to find the origins of mankind, but they fucking they've gone fucking light years away. I, I just
0: well, they, they, the thing is, they start out by wanting to find the origins of mankind, and then they take this huge left turn and go, Oh, we've just got to fight the aliens now. And all of those interesting ideas, you know, Ra- Rafe Spall and the geologist start out going, wanting to explore the planet, and it's just, nope, too late. We're going to, we just have to fight these creatures now. It's just, it's a shame because what you've got is you've got not enough of what I found interesting, and too much of, like, it's another alien, but it's not the alien that we expect. It's, I mean,. I would say either actually do the original story, do the original story, and they find the alien ship, and then and then that's what it is, and that idea that you had about you know they maybe they just found these creatures rather than creating them completely, um, or take it off, make Prometheus a whole new universe. Ridley Scott's a sci-fi guy, take you know, but um, yeah, I think this is definitely an example of Ridley Scott's original visual vision being compromised, right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, listen, that's been our Ridley Scott features. Thank you very much for going on that journey with me, mate. And thank you very much, uh, audience, for listening. I've really enjoyed talking about Ridley Scott and his features. We've got more Ridley, Spot, Ridley Scott for you coming up. Um, but those those are the features for this month. that's all for this month's Double Real Features. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Gateway by Kevin MacLeod. The Duelist is available with a Paramount Plus subscription or to rent or buy from the usual digital sources. It's starting to get expensive and harder to find on DVD and Blu-ray.
1: Kubrick's unrealised Napoleon project is the subject of many books and online articles. Diehards can see original materials by visiting the Stanley Kubrick Archive at the
0: University of the Arts in London. Tune in next week for The Big Conversation where we'll be discussing our top 10 Ridley Scott films. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.